Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the U.S. government and UFOs. I'm live in my studio today with Greg Bishop, who is the author of Project Beta, a book about the Paul Benowitz case, national security, and the creation of the modern UFO myth. He is also co-author of A is for Adamski, a an encyclopedic book about UFO contactees, and another title called It Defies Language, a collection of his essays about UFOs in the UFO community. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you, a pleasure to be with you, a pleasure to be live here in yeah, the yeah. studio. This this is a rare experience. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've uh, been listening to your show, watching your show for years. And I never thought I'd actually be on it, much less in the studio with you. So this is wonderful. Well, here you are in the studio. Let's begin by uh, addressing your longstanding interest in ufology. Mm -hmm. Well, it uh, started when I was a child. Most people say that, um, unless it was a uh, incident or a sighting or something that happened to them. I just, um, as I told you before, read all the books in the library when I was a child about UFOs and the paranormal and Bigfoot and the Loch Ness monster. For some reason, I was fascinated with that stuff. I have no idea why. And uh, that interest followed me into adulthood. And when that happens, you really start getting specialized and into these uh, various areas. And it seems like the UFO thing um, captured my imagination more than the other ones. But, of course, I'm still interested in those things. And there's so many connections between them. Now, I suspect most of our viewers will be unfamiliar with the Paul Benowitz case, which is, is our focus today. We're really going to look at your book, Project Beta. Mm -hmm. So, uh, let's begin by uh, talking about who Paul Benowitz was, why this case is so crucial in our understanding of the history of the uh, field of ufology. A, a good starting point is that it, it really occurred here where we are in Albuquerque. There's a huge Air Force base here called Kirtland Air Force Base. Um, it is a uh, research facility. Um, it is also a center of um, uh, satellite uh, technology and development of weapon systems, everything. There's a lot of black projects that uh, still go on at Kirtland Air Force Base under various, you know, d various different uh, authorities. Um, and some of them are concerned with the security of these projects. And that's what Paul Benowitz ran into when he started watching lights uh, taking off in the middle of the night from, uh, from his porch. He, his uh, house, his house is still there. His wife still lives there, Overlook, overlooks um, Kirtland Air Force Base. So he started seeing lights in the middle of the night in the winter, taking off, just lifting up off the ground and flying over this uh, weapons storage facility, Manzano Mountain, and dipping down behind it. Um, he started filming these lights. He started videotaping these lights. And um, since he was a UFO researcher, and a member of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, which is, was a huge 
civilian UFO research organization in the 1950s and 60s. He um, started to develop the idea that these were some sort of UFOs or alien craft, and he felt like he really had to tell the government about this, hmm. really had to tell the base, uh, security and people on the base. And his company, Thunder Scientific, which he'd founded, which made um, and still does um, measuring instruments, I think it's temperature and humidity instruments, um, for various uh, different um, uh, uh, entities, including the government, I believe. Um, he thought it was his duty or his patriotic duty to inform the base authorities about this. So he wrote a letter, or maybe a series of letters, and uh, people at the base, specifically the security people, Air Force Office of Special Investigations, which is kind of like the Air Force's FBI, and um, other people like the NSA, CIA, who had presence there and still do, uh, they thought, who is this? Why is he looking at these things? And why is he saying these things? Because they don't know who he is. They don't know what his interest is. And he's talking about aliens. But he wasn't he already involved as a contractor with the base? They knew him in that context? Yeah. I, I've not been able to find out if he had a specific contract with the base, but he did have specific contracts with government entities to provide these uh, measuring instruments. Um, you know, he was an electrical engineer. I think he had a master's in electrical engineering and very good, you know, mechanically and building things. He built his own computers back then in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, when you couldn't even buy a computer. He bought his own, he built his own computers wrote the software for them, and uh, uh, had them work that way. So he was really good at it, he, you know, good at what he did. But his Achilles heel, if you want to say that's what it was, was his interest in UFOs and his um, his ability to, as Bill Moore told me, make leaps of uh, logic based on incomplete information. Yeah. Um, and so he wrote to the Air Force, wrote to the base security and said, I really need to tell you about this. And they thought, who is this person? Why is he saying these things? And I guess we'd better meet with him to see what he wants to say. So he went to the base. Uh, they had a meeting. I was told by an NSA person I talked to that there were about probably 10, 15 people in the meeting. By the end of the meeting, there were only two people left because people started leaving saying, this has nothing to do with us. We don't have to worry about this. And they just took off. Um, the only people left, I believe, were uh, Richard Doty and, and perhaps Ernest Edwards, who were uh, with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And they told him, yes, Paul, we're very interested in what you have. Please keep telling us more. They didn't tell him to stop. People asked me that. They said, why didn't they just tell him to stop looking at these things and talking about them? Just like, please be quiet. These are black projects. Um, the reason was that when something like this happens... Intelligence agencies want to know why the person's doing what they're doing, um, and more importantly, who's listening to them? Who's talking to them? How do we trace these um, relationships with people that are that sh you know are not UFO people, but really are interested in what's going on on the base? Because hmm. intelligence agencies all over the world they gather information and they try to collate it into some kind of picture about what the adversary may be doing, mm -hmm. what they may be developing. And so that's what they were concerned about. So they told Paul, please keep in touch. We will, you know, we will work with you. And he thought, oh, okay, they want to know about aliens and why they're here. That's not what they wanted to know. They wanted to know what I just said, why he was doing it, who he was talking to, and what he was picking up on mm -hmm. his instruments. 
Now, you mentioned another person, Bill Moore, mm -hmm. uh, who's part of this story. How does he get involved? Bill Moore was a UFO researcher. He wrote the original Roswell incident in 1978, I think. I mean, the, the book that started it all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was this book. And uh, he was a member of the uh, APRO board. And he was, uh, he became interested in the case because the Air Force, uh, AFOSI, sent out letters to UFO researchers with a strange story about a UFO sighting on a military base. And the reason they sent it out, Bill told me, was to find out who would respond and how they would respond to figure out if they were people they wanted to contact. And Bill's response was he called up the person that was named in the document and the person said, you know, that that happened, but it did not happen in that way. This is a, this is a, this document has nothing to do with what, what actually happened to me. I had a sighting, but all the rest of it is is inaccurate. And so Bill came back to the APRO board and said, this, this is fake. We don't even have to, you know, there's no way to really check out, check this out. But because he had actually checked it out, found out, talked to people, um, uh, Doty and people in the Air Force realized, okay, here's somebody that is thorough, um, they're circumspect, and they don't just take every story, you know, at face value if it conforms to their pre predisposed beliefs. So they contacted him and said, could you please talk to, keep an eye on, and tell us who is talking about what things. They didn't tell him, you know, what those projects were. He, they wanted to know what UFO researchers were talking about. Hmm. They said, I saw this big black thing take off from, you know, uh, uh, some, some Air Force base somewhere. And, of course, somebody from China, Russia, or whatever at the time would write and say, what was this thing you saw? Because it would be information they could possibly use. Um, and it wasn't some alien craft. It was something they were working on. So they wanted a few people on the inside, inside of the ufology, to be able to, to tell them who was talking and what they were talking about and what they knew and possibly who they were talking to. Yeah. Um, and Bill said a few other researchers also accepted this deal. And the reason he said that he did it was because in exchange for this service, they weren't going to pay him. He claims they never paid him. And I, I've known him pretty well for many years. I don't think they paid him because if they did, it wasn't very much. Um, in exchange for this uh, work he would do, they said they would give him proof of UFO uh, information in within the government documentation. You know, the and, you know people are very interested in UFO documents from the government now. Yeah. He they said he would have access to these documents, and he did. He got access to lots of them. And lots of them probably were fake or useless, um, he, as he told me later. In other words, we're talking about the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. Special Investigation. They were, in effect, infiltrating the UFO community. Yes, for information. People think that they were infiltrating because they wanted to mess with the UFO community or misdirect them or whatever. I think the misdirection would have would be you're getting too close to some sort of project. Why don't you, you know, here's some inside information. Why don't you look at this aspect of it? Mm -hmm. And that would kind of steer them away from what they didn't want, a black project, and towards something mm -hmm. else. It was not to make them, mm -hmm. you know, disbelieve in UFOs or anything like that. And, and I would assume in the 1970s, 1980s, we're looking at the development of stealth technology. Yes, that was a, the biggest thing then. Um, 
I've talked to people in the intervening years since I wrote the book, and the lights he saw taking up, taking off and going over the base may have been early drone technology. They looked like glowing balls, but uh, Benowitz actually said that he would look through his binoculars and he would see Air Force personnel at two in the morning walking around these things, and then they would walk away and the things would take up, take off and, and move through the air. So to me, it sounds like some sort of drone technology, but it, it looked like UFOs. So who knows what those things were, but they were being tested on the base and the um, the Air Force was testing them or whatever authority on the base that was, you know, using these things. I don't know why they were doing this right out in the open where people could see it. Um, but I think they were doing this really late at night, so they, I guess they figured most people were asleep. But Paul wasn't. He was out on his porch watching these things. And he had a great view. He had a perfect view, yeah. Uh -huh. And all kinds of telescopes, binoculars, and uh, yeah. uh, electronic equipment. Yeah. Probably spectrographs, things like that. He was also um, picking up radio transmissions, and he thought these were from some kind of alien civilization. And as far as I've been able to determine, they were um, testing microbursts, which is uh, a type of technology that uh, sends very a lot of information in a very small amount of time. And if you listen to it, it just kind of sounds like a, a tone or a brrr or something like that. But it's basically coded information all shoved into a tiny little, like a micro dot, except it's uh, electromagnetic uh -huh. signal. And those were being used to either communicate or control missiles or who knows yeah. what. But he was starting to figure these things out because he was so good at electronics. He thought he was being he was able to pull out messages from these things. Mm -hmm. And he said there were messages from alien civilizations that were on the earth right now and um, that uh, he was trying to make the Air Force aware of this. Bill Moore, for his part, all they told him was, we will give you these documents, we will give you access to them, which they did. They kept up their part of the bargain. And all you have to do is tell us what people are saying and what mm -hmm. they're doing and who they're talking to and what they're talking about, um, which he did. And uh, he also did other things, too. He, they trained him to tail people and investigate people. So he kind of became an unpaid spy for the Air Force for a while. He didn't just do UFO stuff. They actually had him track people down. He lived in Los Angeles for a while, and they had him track people mm -hmm. down that they were trying to find. Um, he didn't go into detail with that for me. But the other thing that happened, which I thought was fascinating, was that he got letters, um, postcards from Russia. And the postcards were supposedly from UFO researchers in Russia writing to a UFO researcher in the United States. And they were just postcards, and they said, you know, I'm interested in this case. Please tell me about it. Um, you know, is there any news? Whatever. Just innocuous mm -hmm. things. Bill told me he had to take the letters. Somebody would call him on the phone, and it was all, or no, he would have to call a number, and it was always a different number. Somebody would pick up the phone and say hello or something like that, and he would have to read the postcard, verbatim, spelling errors, punctuation, everything. And then they would say, thank you, hang up. And then he got instructions to take the letter, put it in an envelope, and take it to a specific post office and send it on to another address. And I asked what those were, and he said there were people inside Russia that were sending out information. There were spies. 
like information on missile factories and information on troop movements or whatever. And these were encoded in these. <laughs> it's, it's, it, I mean, it sounds like silly cloak and dagger spy stuff, but a lot of that stuff works like that. Yeah. And so, you know, apart from the fact that he was a UFO researcher and he was helping the government, I mean, it was kind of exciting to be a spy, I guess, for a little while, even if it was an unpaid one. But anyway, he, he, um, he developed a relationship with Paul Benowitz because, you know, he's coming from the APRO board, so Paul's going to uh, trust him immediately. Yeah. And basically just watched him, talked to him, and uh, kept an eye on him and, and got back to the Air Force about anything he heard. Let me ask you, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization is no longer in existence, to my knowledge. No, the founders, when the founders passed away, it, it, it pretty much uh, uh, it lost all its momentum. Mm -hmm. uh, Coral and Jim Lawrence, and when, when they passed away, it was, uh, it's like a lot of organizations. When the original founders, the figureheads, and the people that provide all the uh, organization and the, and the energy to keep it going go or die or lose interest, it just falls apart. So it did. Actually, MUFON, the, the one that's still in existence now, was a split-off organization. Walt Andrus decided he wanted to have his own organization and split off from them in, I think, in 1966, 67, mm -hmm. something like that. And they still exist. So actually, their lineage goes back to Africa. I see. I should point out for purposes of disclosure that uh, my... Uh, when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, one of my dissertation committee members was James Harder, who you write about in your book, mm -hmm. who was the research director of APRO. Yeah, yeah. They, they were an organization that prided themselves on having um, academics and scientists on their board. And yes, Harder was one of them. And uh, he figures in the story because he became one of the people that Benowitz asked to come from APRO and hypnotized this woman who said that she was abducted um, in northern New Mexico uh, around, I think it was 1978-79. And she was steered towards him because somebody in the New Mexico State Police knew him as a UFO researcher in the area and the most likely person to want to have to deal with this. Who specialized in hypnotizing people who, who claimed to have been abducted or claimed to be contactees. Yeah, yeah Harder did this. Yeah. I believe Harder also um, was sent to hypnotize the Travis Walton mm -hmm. and the people in that. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. The Pascagoula case. Uh, uh, oh. Snow, that's Snowflake, Arizona. Oh. I think he also went to Pascagoula, too. That was He did go to yeah, Pascagoula, uh, but I'm not yeah. sure about Travis Walton. I think he was one of the people that uh, yeah. worked on the Travis Walton case, too. But I'm yeah, not surprised. Was, yeah. Back in the 1970s, uh, when I knew him, he, he was one of the country's most prominent UFO investigators, along mm -hmm. with Hynek and Valet. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the few people that did regressions, along with Leo Sprinkle, who, was, who just, uh, I think, passed away about a year ago. Yeah. So um, there were only a few people doing this then. So And then Paul happened, and Benowitz happened, no one of them through APRO. So he called him out, and uh, he came to Albuquerque, I think probably on Paul's dime, because yeah. he had this business. Flew him out there and had him uh, hypnotize this woman to try and get more uh, details out of her. And a lot of details emerged. And as you know, hypnosis is you people are very suggestible. So whatever the original story was and what happened to her soon developed into this um, saga where the uh, what she saw connected what Paul Bennett was seeing. She talked about underground bases. He became very interested in the underground base thing. And his uh, uh, eventually his attention was directed away from Kirtland toward the Dulce, New Mexico mm -hmm. area. 
and the Air Force actually told him there was an underground alien base there and that he should look at that. So he became very interested in that. And it took his attention away from Kirtland, which was what they wanted. Yeah. Well, the Dulce, New Mexico area is described in the book Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, mm -hmm. recently published, because during the OSAF uh, period of, of research around 2008, 2009, yeah. 2010, one of the projects they, they looked at were all these strange sightings yeah. uh, going on. It uh, sent people out there. National uh -huh. Institute of Discovery Science. Yeah. Um, one of the people they worked with was a character in my book, Gabe Valdez, who was a New Mexico state policeman who had jurisdiction over that area and you know, knew the tribe, the Hickory Apache tribe. And um, he started investigating cattle mutilations there in the 70s when they just started. Mm -hmm. um, so Benowitz knew him as the UFO guy on the state police. So he actually drove this woman, Myrna Hansen, from... Uh, Eagle Nest, which is in north uh, eastern New Mexico, all the way to Albuquerque to meet with uh, Benowitz. And uh, be the reason they knew each other, I'll try not to get too discursive, but the reason they knew each other was because one of the senators uh, from New Mexico, I think it was Harrison Schmidt, the astronaut, um, there was he convened a conference in Albuquerque at the Central Library, I believe in 1978. And it was a conference on the cattle mutilation phenomenon. He wanted to get to the bottom of it. So they got everybody they knew who might know anything about it together to, uh, to meet. And every, you know, people gave presentations about this. And Paul Benowitz met Gabe Valdez there because Paul was into the UFO side of things. And Gabe was investigating the, the cattle mutilations. And they, they, they became friends that way. And so Myrna Hansen is the contactee or abductee. Mm -hmm. Who, uh, as I understand the story, eventually came to live in Benowitz's home. He invited her to move into the house. Well, for the period when they were doing the hypnosis, I think she did stay at the house for a period of days or weeks or something like that. Um, you know, the way I hear it, the way I heard it, the way I understand it, it just sounds a little dangerous because Paul was there asking her questions and they were loaded questions based on his ideas about what um, what was going on and uh, in New Mexico and in the United States with some sort of alien invasion? Mm -hmm. That's what he thought was going on. Yeah. And the Air Force uh, AFOSI um, encouraged him in his delusions because they wanted to hear what he was doing, but they also didn't want him to get near any any secret projects. Mm -hmm. And in if uh, at least one case um, that Bill Moore was involved in, they made up a document and had Bill Moore deliver it to him. And Bill told me he didn't want to do it. And after you know, a period of days or weeks, they said, well, you do it or the deal's off. Um, so he said he took, this is another spy thing. He took this document, which has become known as the Aquarius document, uh, to Paul's house. And basically what it said was the Air Force is interested, the national security state is interested in UFOs and um uh, there is a clearinghouse at Bowling Air Force Base for all this information, and that, uh, uh, that UFO information goes through this area. They also mentioned for the first time in ever, I think, in that document, it said that the information was under the purview of a group called MJ-12. That's the first time, I think, in history that that, that, uh, do, uh, that uh, term was mentioned, mm -hmm. was in that Aquarius document. 
But um, the cloak and dagger part was built, took it over to his uh, office at Thunder Scientific at night when when it was closed, said, um, Paul, please meet me there. He told me, he took the document, he told Benowitz, do you have like a storage closet or something somewhere because I want to talk to you and I don't want anybody to hear. They went in the closet and he said, bring a radio in and he turned the radio all the way up. He gave Paul the document and he said, I was told to give this to you. Take it with a grain of salt. Be very careful about what you do with this. And Paul took it, he said, and um, Bill said he put it in a safe and never mentioned it ever again. But the point was that he read it and it reinforced his belief about how involved he was and how right he was about this alien invasion stuff. And um, I thought it was very funny because did you see um, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, the Chuck Barris uh, biopic? No. Chuck Barris said he worked for the CIA as a hitman. Nobody knows if it's true or not. But um, George Clooney plays Chuck Barris in it, and he he comes, he I mean, I'm sorry, he plays the CIA handler that talks to Chuck Barris. And he comes to tell him something very important. He comes in his house, and he just turns his stereo all the way up and yells in his ear. And you can't hear it, but there's a subtitle. But I was like, mm-hmm. wow, that's exactly what happened to Bill Moore. It's like, you know, straight out of the spy playbook. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it... All this cloak and dagger stuff was going on around Benowitz, and it was, he thought it was because he was onto something, that he was onto something important. Um, and the AFOSI, the NSA, anybody else that was around there were happy to have him deluded like this as long as he could keep doing what he was doing and uh, they could find out, like I said, who he knew, who he was talking to, what he was thinking, what they were asking him. Mm-hmm. To build these build these maps of who knew each other and who you know, I am UFO researcher from Russia. I'd like to know. Well, you could check up on that guy and find out. In fact, I guess they busted a couple of spy rings based on some of Benowitz's information. As far as I know, it contributed to you know finding people that were here embedded in the in, in the culture and in the you know in the United States that were basically just here to vacuum up information and send it back to Russia just like the people sending the stuff in the on the on the uh, postcards to Bill Moore's uh, address hmm. it's it's such a it was such a weird drama well there's another wrinkle in in all of this that we should explore which is that even after you factor out all the potential black projects and uh, drones mm-hmm. and known aviation going on around Albuquerque which obviously it's a metropolitan community there are yeah. helicopters and small aircraft flying around all the time yeah. it seems as if there's still uh, I heard a presentation to this effect at a UFO conference a few years ago. You factor all of that out. It seems as if Benowitz was still recording sightings, uh, objects f- flying around Kirtland Air Force Base and Manzano Mountain that uh, didn't seem to be accounted for. That is a distinct possibility. There was also... And the reason I say that is because there were some documents released uh, sometime in the late 70s, early 80s that talked about some sort of landings at Kirtland Air Force Base. Now, you can take it with a grain of salt, but it's they weren't really elaborated on. It wasn't anything really, you know, they didn't describe anything more than something landed. Some guards got very nervous and then the things took off. 
and it made whoever it was very nervous because it was right next to some nuclear weapons or storage facilities, and that's what would concern them, especially the Department of Energy, who have purview over that kind of stuff. But yeah, there's, you know, I the title of the book, the subtitle is um, Paul Benowitz, National Security and the Creation of, of a, modern, a Modern UFO Myth. And um, I have this problem sometimes that people say, well, you're just trying to explain UFOs away. And I say, no, no, I'm trying to tell you that it's very involved with the national security state. And that part is used um, for information, disinformation, all that, for whatever purposes they need it to, as a tool. It's like a tool in their toolbox. So this is but a, it doesn't mean there's no UFOs and no unidentified things. That's a, that's a separate a separate issue, but yeah. this is a layer that that has been going on for decades. Yeah. That it's still yeah. going on now. Mm -hmm. It's been going on very heavily in the last few years since that article came out in the New York Times um, uh, by Blumenthal and Leslie Keane. And when people ask me about that, of course, I've got you know my brain is you know uh, military intelligence. What are they interested in? What are they? Why would they want to do this? And I go back to Benowitz. And the first thing I think is, they're not interested in UFOs. They're interested in what people think about UFOs and what the subject can be used for in order to get information and maybe even um, find out about the UFOs themselves and see if there's some sort of technological or intelligence value in examining them and, and taking the subject seriously on a public level. The other thing I said was I think that was a shot across the bow to get... Um, to crowdsource UFO research amongst people who are credentialed and have degrees and to take that stigma away so that they they can get a, a lot richer um, information flow about what this might be and how it might be useful or exploitable. So Bill Moore essentially became an informant for the uh, Air Force Office of yes. Special Investigations. Yes. And at the same time, he's a board member of the yeah, APRO organization, mm -hmm. at the time, mm -hmm. possibly the largest UFO research organization. Yeah, so all this is going into the mix. And um, well, as he said, there were other researchers that had the same deal, but he wasn't at liberty to talk about it. And it sounds like he's trying to push, you know... Uh, uh, responsibility on other people, but it just stands to reason that they would try and get as many researchers on board as possible for whatever motivations, money, information, being a spy, whatever, to help them out. And it has nothing to do with making the UFO uh, field look bad or, or you know, um, getting them away from the truth or whatever. It's just a tool. Um, the way Bill described it to me was um, it was one cog in a huge machine. And so I describe that to people as, imagine a giant clockwork mechanism with 500 wheels in it all turning. Yeah. The but, Benowitz thing, the thing I wrote about, mm -hmm. is one cog in that giant machine. Well, Benowitz is a very interesting character because he's highly competent. Mm -hmm. He's managing a very successful high-tech business. Which still exists, which, actually. Which still exists. <laughs> he has a great view right overlooking the Kirtland Air Force Base and all kinds of uh, equipment that enables him to monitor what's, what's going on there. Yeah. And on the basis of his own observations, he's become convinced that uh, we are in the midst of an alien invasion. Yes. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he came up with that idea on his own, but it was encouraged and, uh, and uh, what? 
encouraged and, and pushed by people that were watching him, the intelligence people. Uh, Moore said he was, he just watched them slowly go more and more, get more and more away from reality. And he said, I warned him multiple times, Paul, you ought to back off here because it's affecting your health, it's affecting your mental health, it's affecting your family. And he said, just, he, he just watched him get worse and worse. He said he went to lunch with him once and watched him smoke an entire pack of cigarettes during lunch and not even finish the cigarettes. He would just keep lighting them. Um, at a certain point, uh, his family got so scared uh, about his mental state, they actually had him put in a mental health facility for about a month um, just to, you know, uh, kind of um, reset him. And apparently it did. I mean, he, he was out after a month and or so, and he came back home, and his, he, <laughs> that, the, the mania was ramped down quite a bit. Um, there's scary parts of the story, too. Um, one of them was Benowitz said that somebody came at night and injected him with chemicals. And I asked about that, uh, asked a few people outside of the intelligence community, because I tried to check inside and outside, because the intelligence people are going to tell me what they need to tell me, not necessarily the truth. Uh, and I realized that. But I talked to people like Gabe Valdez, and they said, yeah, I could see injection marks on his arm. And they don't know. It remains to be seen whether I don't think he was doing it to himself. So who knows what was going mm -hmm. on? That's a very sinister and deep part of the thing that I never really got to find out too much about. Also, his family absolutely refused to cooperate with me, which made me uneasy about doing the book. So I had to rely on uh, friends, acquaintances, uh, you know, printed sources, things like that, and kind of put the story together based on all those. Uh, all of those uh, mm -hmm. information sources and try to tell it chronologically. And it's, you know, it's basically quite a tragedy. He's a, Benowitz was a, a tragic uh, character. And, um, you know, he had his, you know, it's almost mythological. You know, he had this quest, but he had this Achilles heel about his belief system and would not check himself about, uh, you know, the information that might be coming in. He filtered it based on his belief system which just, you know, it just fed on itself and got worse well, and worse. Well, his belief system was apparently reinforced by uh, some of the Air Force officials with whom he interacted. And, yes. And then uh, the uh, policeman, Gabe Valdez, introduced him to the abductee, Myrna Hansen, who was then hypnotized by James Harder yes. it, at Benowitz's home, I assume. Yes. And uh, he wrote about this in his his you know his document Project Beta, which is what the the uh, the, the book is named after. Yeah, he reported all this and said you know this subject was you know told us this this kind of information. We had these protocols. The you know the and he he did a full report on it, but it was all you know, predicated on their aliens here and they're trying to take over the planet. Now, hypnosis had become a tool often used to help uh, evaluate cases of ostensible abductions going way back to the Betty and Barney Hill case. Yes, I think that was probably the first, at least anybody knows, not not just the major case, but the first case where that was 1964, used. as yeah. I recall. And it's interesting because there's a whole mythology and a whole idea and and scenario around UFO abduction now but there wasn't then they mm -hmm. were they were, they were flying blind and they basically had not the exact same uh, scenario but to me it's fascinating because the story that came out had no precedent and it sort of matches what's going on now car stopped people put it into altered state 
beings come and take them, take them on a ship, medical examination, let them go. Um, and then they sort of forgot about it and then recalled it through hypnosis. Um, so to me, that means there's there's something very important psychologically, if not you know, objectively going on there. Yeah. And we still don't know the answer to that. But by the time you get to Benowitz, there's sort of a protocol about how that should be. And plus you add in Benowitz's belief system, what he's trying to find out, that's gonna, I think that really affected her recall. So who knows what exactly happened to Myrna Hansen. She said that she was, her car was stopped, she was with her son, and they saw something floating over a field. And they actually saw, she said she saw a cow standing under this UFO and getting floated into the UFO. And then her somehow her and her son ended up on the UFO and had the medical examination and all that. So it um, it is an interesting part of the UFO mythology that this was going on then and hooked into and, and, and uh, uh, amplified by Benowitz's ideas about these things. And he was there the entire time while she was being hypnotized and talking to her and asking questions. And when you're in a suggestible state, as in hypnosis, um, your memories, I think, become very malleable and fluid. Uh, and that's you know, it's not a case to not use hypnosis, but as a tool, I think it's you know, it's it, it may be even more inexact than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, so the thing is that you know, her her recall was reinforced by Benowitz, and then in turn reinforced Benowitz's ideas about what was going on. And I believe the underground base stuff started with Myrna Hansen because she said that at some point she was taken underground and saw this underground facility um, with military people. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the first mention of that. It became later became something that's part of the UFO uh, world now, which is military abductions, my labs, they called. So and it sounds like from what you're saying is that a certain aspect of the UFO mythology, the my labs, the men in black, the yeah, uh, military underground bases, mm -hmm. and 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 so on. A lot of that was generated by the government for purposes completely unrelated to uh, actual UFO investigations. Yeah, well, it was generated mostly by Benowitz, as far as I can tell, but encouraged by the government people okay. to the point where they took what he said and then just didn't encouraged it, like, uh, to, as I said before, to get him to stop paying attention to Kirtland, they actually flew him in a helicopter up to Dulce, New Mexico, and as I was told, put props in the mountains that looked like jeeps, you know, um, uh, 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 storage tanks, things like that, and said, look, Paul, that your, your idea about an underground base, there's one right here, you ought to look into it. They flew him up there twice. Um, to, to encourage him to, to go to that area. Um, the funny thing is that, and when I wrote the book, I thought it was just complete disinformation. Um, I found out later from Gabe and other people in the Hickoria tribe who I became friends with that there probably was something underground there, but it, who knows whether it had anything to do with aliens or not. Hmm. There was some sort of underground facility. They said, you know, Gabe told me he saw... Um, uh, holes in the mountain with air coming in and uh, coming out of it, like there was a, some mm -hmm. kind of uh, filtration system or something like yeah. that. And there was something there, but it had, you know, as far as I can tell, it had nothing to do with aliens and a and a joint U.S. you know uh, a U.S. government alien base or anything like that 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 Benowitz thought was going on there. But that myth was built upon, and mm -hmm. now it's kind of bedrock uh, uh, 
creation myth, I guess you would say, of the UFO community. Well, the Dulce, New Mexico area uh, is even today reportedly a site of lots of paranormal activity. Yeah. Uh, in the 70s, when this uh, when Benowitz was first up there, people were seeing strange lights flying around. They still do. I mean, it, it comes in waves like a lot of UFO stuff. Yeah. But they saw strange lights which were not aircraft, which were not probably not even secret aircraft, doing things that aircraft aren't supposed to do. Standard UFO sightings, you know, balls of light, mm -hmm. things like that. And then, strangely enough, Bigfoot too. Yeah. You know, there's there's a there's a um, there's enough Bigfoot activity there that there's been researchers up there. There's people in the tribe I know. Um, I've taken my drone up there and tried to go flying around to see if we could see any Bigfoot nests or mm -hmm. trails. I've just gone up there to help them out, but. That's part of the mix there too. It's a it's a very um, pregnant area, pregnant with with the paranormal mm -hmm. and the cattle mutilation. Uh, that was one of the uh, flashpoints for the cattle mutilation uh, mystery that began in the seventies. That that was one of the very main places where this was happening. And Gabe Valdez was the police officer there, and he was called out to look at these things. And he told me and showed me, and I think I put it in the book. Um, he got threatening phone calls. He had bugs in his house, uh, electronic bugs. And he showed me pictures of them. He opened his phone up and he found one inside the phone. Um, and they had it they had it looked at. It's like, yeah, that's a that's a you know, it, it picks up the audio and rebroadcasts it. He said he had one in his fire uh, fire uh, uh, what's it called? Smoke detector. He showed me that. Hmm. So if it's just some silly thing or aliens or whatever or, you know, a cult or whatever, why is somebody monitoring his mm -hmm. phone calls and, you know, threatening people around there? It's it, it's a whole other mystery, too, that mm -hmm. uh, is uh, related to the UFO thing, but um, there's probably more evidence because you got a dead cow. So we've got many layers. Yeah, I mean, it's just going on. It's such a wedding cake mm -hmm. of all these different things. You've got the possibility of paranormal activity. Mm -hmm. However you want to define that. Mm -hmm. I, I think of it maybe as uh, extra dimensional uh, interpenetration of our three dimensional reality. Right. Yes. Uh, you've got normal human psychology and all the foibles associated with just standard human uh, activity. Yeah. Uh, which I mean, includes an enormous amount of foolishness. Yes. <laughs> uh, you have the possibility of uh, some sort of, uh, we don't know if they're extra dimensional or extraterrestrial, but uh, there's so many abduction cases reported. We don't know uh, the basis of those yet. Yeah. There seems to be an external source for a lot of these things, but um, we make assumptions because humans like to do that. You want to know what's going on. Evolutionarily, we have to know what's going on to survive. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sense of things. And even if it makes crazy sense, at least we've made some sort of sense yeah. of it. And so that's uh, it's it's ripe for somebody like, uh, you know, the AFLSI to put their own stamp on it and let people think, let's, you know, let's believe this about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that's all UFO things, but when it has to do with anything to do with the government, I think you have to be really careful about what they're telling you and about what they're information. It's like, hey, come over here. You're a good researcher. We're going to give you some information. Right. And then, of course, you just become a repeater station for whatever kind of disinformation they want to throw out. Well, they may have been concerned, for all we know, about foreign spies infiltrating UFO organizations. Oh, they were very concerned about it. Yeah. And that happened. Yeah. Um, Bill told me he knew a guy from China 
And they asked him to befriend him and, and keep an eye on him because he said he was a UFO in, uh, uh, investigator. His name was Paul Dong, D-O-N-G. Uh-huh. And he wrote a book about Chinese UFOs, which you can still get. Uh-huh. But Bill told me he had an acupuncture business in the Bay Area, and he was there with his wife. And Bill knew he was working for the Chinese government. And Paul knew that Bill knew this. And it was this, this weird kind of gentleman spy agreement. I'm keeping an eye on you. You're keeping an eye on me. Whatever. But he would report back to people what Paul said, what he was doing, where he was going, what his ideas were, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, it, it's it's this spy game that goes on all the time. It's just once in a while it intersects with the paranormal and with UFOs. Oh. Um, and there's people in the government that are, that are, are genuinely and uh, sincerely interested in this, just like we are. Mm-hmm. And they figure they can use their connections to to uh, to uh, find such a thing, to find more information. And Bill was a member of this group, which uh, became known as the Aviary. Him him and his research partner named it that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were just people in the government. Um, curious um, people. Yeah, curious people. Hal Putoff was in the group. John Alexander was in the group. Yeah. Uh, those are the two most famous people that people would know. But they would meet informally every once in a while. And find out from each other what they had found out. I found out this from my friend at the NSA. I found out this from my friend, you know, at the the DOD or whatever. And they would try and figure this out. Uh, they were almost like a civilian research organization, except they all happened to have clearances, hmm. you know. And I guess Bill had some sort of low-level clearance, so he'd be able to talk to these people. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's... It's so strange to see these people doing basically what UFO organizations do, but at a different place or a higher level or whatever you want to call it. It's it's a it's a human interest, and it's 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 always going to be. But yeah, it, like I said, it they will use it as a tool if they need to. And Bill Moore, uh, as you describe in your book, at one time went public at a UFO conference and confessed that he had been an informant uh, for Air Force intelligence. Yeah, and he was vilified for it. Um, and uh, the thing that people missed was he didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to admit this to people. And it wasn't he wanted attention. Who wants negative attention? Who wants everybody hating you? But he said he did it for um, two reasons. One, he asked. He asked uh, the powers that be he was working with, is it okay if I talk about this? He said, yeah. Um, I guess they said don't mention certain things, but you can talk about it. And uh, two, he had people, uh, there were rumors going around that he was doing what he did, except they were all completely wrong or or, uh, inaccurate, and he wanted to put that to rest. And three, and maybe most importantly, he wanted to to warn people, if government people come to you and tell you that they've got special information, you should be very careful about what they're telling you. Mm -hmm. And... um, as I said in the book, it's the best speech I've ever seen on anything ever because of the reaction. They had to stop the talk. This was in MUFON mm-hmm. in 1989 in Vegas, and I was there because I had met Bill about two years before, and he said, I'm going to blow their socks off. What are you going to talk about, Bill? He said, I can't tell you. I just come to Vegas, help me sell books, and um, and you can see what happens. And uh, Valet was there. It's the first time I met Jacques Valet, I think, was at that conference, so he saw it. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure, but they left Bill for the the premier spot on Saturday night, the one they want everybody to see. I mean, the the UFO conferences is well any conference. There's basically a keynote speaker. Mm-hmm. So Saturday night, 
when everybody was there, he goes up to the front of the podium, packed house, standing room only, and starts talking about what happened. Talks about Paul Benowitz, talks about Doty, talks about the entire operation as much as he could talk about. I revealed more in the book because I talked to him about it. And as he starts speaking, people start yelling. They, I mean, if they brought things to throw, they probably would have thrown things too. It was a very emotional. Um, uh, I saw I saw a woman crying. Um, people left the room. Um, the, the state director had to come up and call for order more than a few times. And uh, and then when he was done, instead of taking questions from the audience, he asked his own questions and answered them, which really meant that made them even more angry. Mm. I asked him why he did that. And he said, if I just asked people for questions, it would have been pandemonium. I couldn't have answered the questions. Yeah. I knew that was going to happen. And when he was done, he said, thank you and farewell. And he walked out the back door next to the stage and, and disappeared. And um, it was a shock to everybody, obviously, because um, they had been hearing rumors about it. And he basically confirmed all these rumors that the UFO field was infiltrated by by uh, intelligence people. And, and he even said the reasons for it. But they focused on, why did you do this? We trusted you and you betrayed us. Um, the real betrayal is if he'd never said anything. But he did say something. He talked about. I'm I'm very biased with Bill because he's a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. We became very good friends, and um, people say, "Well, then why do you believe all this?" He could be lying to you. He could be, you know, part of this government disinformation. I said uh, two reasons. One, he's a friend, as I said, and two, I've never caught him in a lie on anything. He will tell me things, and I'll find the truth out about it days, weeks, months, sometimes years, or even decades later. My God, he told me that, and here's confirming evidence mm -hmm. of it. So he's he's never steered me wrong. Um, that's hard to convey in a book because you know people don't people don't know your friend; they don't know. Um, but because he said that, we got a, because he admitted it, we got a very good insight into why um, government entities are interested in the UFO subject and how they use it. Uh, most people chose to focus on what a horrible thing he did. Not what the mechanics of it was and what the, the what the procedures were and all that. And UFO researchers have been contacted over and over and over again since then. I was. I was contacted by a guy in the Navy who said he was going to give me secret information. And he did. And he made me extremely paranoid for a while to the point of, I mean, I, was, I couldn't sleep. I was looking out the windows. I thought people were you know, monitoring my calls. It was terrible. Um, but they can do this to you. And it's based on ego. And how you know it's like wow I must be important if somebody in the government's talking to me. Hmm. But at that point they can just start feeding you things and you just as I said you become a repeater station. You just spit out what they tell you. In fact, I was told to put a few things in my magazine, and I interpreted them. I said, well, you can take it this way or that way. And the guy got very upset with me because I hadn't just repeated what he told me. Uh, now I didn't mention for benefit of our viewers that you published a magazine. Yes. Let's let, since you brought it up, let's just uh, cover the dates and the name. Okay. Yeah, I I bring this up because I want to, you know, I want to give people kind of a personal view of how this kind of thing works mm -hmm. and how it happens over and over again. It was a magazine called The Excluded Middle. I started in 1991 with a couple friends of mine. And it was UFOs, conspiracies, psychedelics, consciousness, you know, uh, parapsychology. All these things were in the magazine. Um, and a friend of mine uh, said, there's somebody I know who wants to talk to you. Um, and he used the name Mike Younger. 
apparently there was a group of people in the Navy, he told me, that were um, naval intelligence, not Air Force. And they, they, I said, why naval? And they said, who do you think has the purview over most of the Earth, the oceans, is the Navy? So <laughs> they have a much wider net where they see things. And of course, you know, strangely enough, the, uh, the, the New York Times article was about the Navy, about mm -hmm. Navy flyers. Yeah. Um, but he approached me and started showing me pictures of UFOs at Area 51, um, telling me that, you know, he gave me all kinds of documents and information and supposedly inside information because he said, you know, we think you're doing a good job and we want you to um, uh, learn this information. But what it was is they just wanted me to spread their information or their disinformation, and I didn't do it properly. So, you know, they, eventually they dropped me, which was fine. I mean, it was interesting mm -hmm. for a while. I, I I felt like a spy for a while. But, you know, he told me things like um, people can listen to your phone calls. They can see what's on your computer screen. This was in the late mid to late 90s. Um, uh, they can open your mail, which I had mail open. Jeff, I'd actually go to the post office and there was mail that was opened, very obviously opened or destroyed by you know, postal machinery. Mm -hmm. And they were only from two people, a, a deduction researcher, Kyla Turner, and a cattle mutil mutilation researcher, Peter Jordan. Nothing else was touched at that P.O. box for my magazine, just those two mm -hmm. people. And I got phone calls all the time where the phone would ring. And this was before cell phones and all that. I would let my phone ring and it would ring 30, 40, 50 times before they would hung, hang up. And if I turned the machine on or picked up the phone, all I heard was electronic noise or nothing on the other end. And so after a while, this built into this, you know, terrible paranoia in me, and I, I just got tired of mm -hmm. it and decided to stop feeling scared. Yeah. Um, but many UFO researchers, they are strung along this way, and they, they, they spit out whatever, whatever is told to them, which is exactly what they want. Um, and it doesn't bring us any, any closer to an answer to the mystery. It's just, to me, it's just noise. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason for the book was almost like a warning. It's like, this has happened before, it will happen again. It is a model that is used yeah. because, it's, because it is useful and it relies on human psychology. Um, you know, flattering your ego, telling you something people that other people don't know, saying you've been chosen to say these things. Mm -hmm. And so... It, it, it's very easy to get this disinformation out or, you know, sort of modified information, but it's designed to lead people in a certain direction away from things or toward things or whatever mm -hmm. because of national security and whatever else, you know, that the government's working on. And, you know, you should be aware of those things because it has, you know, mm -hmm. I'm more interested in what, you know, what causes UFO reports, not, not this other stuff. So it's kind of like... Here's here's a way to winnow out some of these things that probably don't that aren't very important and concentrate on the you know the actual phenomenon itself and mm -hmm. how it affects people and what the history of it is and what it, what we can do in the future with it. So you know that it led me into other things. Mm -hmm. um, you know everybody's life seems to have a story. I think what Joseph Campbell says when you get to later in your life at the end of your life it seems like there's a narrative somebody has written. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about this uh, about this subject. I started out with uh, kind of being interested in everything, and then I got narrowed down into the government stuff. And then I realized, oh, that's not really telling us anything about this subject that we all love, that we really want to find out more about. So, you know, here's a little filtering uh, tool. <laughs> Ignore this part. Pay attention to it because it's interesting, and it might tell you something interesting. But um, uh, concentrate on the, the phenomenon itself 
and the people involved with it and, and how it affects them. And that will tell us a little bit more about what that mystery might be. Well, Greg Bishop, what a fascinating conversation. I know we're just scratching the surface of of your vast knowledge. I'm delighted that you're here with me in Albuquerque. We can do a few more interviews, hopefully, while you're here. Yeah. So, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.